Duncan. James. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. Ready to get this episode started. Let's do it. All right. So, welcome to Cloud Tricks, a podcast where Duncan and I like to discuss about ideas that have either inspired us, challenged our way of thinking, or simply something that we have found to be downright fascinating. So, today, we'll be talking about the idea of free speech. Uh, something that in particular has had no shortage of press coverage in recent years over a number of wide-ranging issues and events. Um, but even in uh, modern uh, tech companies like Facebook and Google, this is starting to become a lot more of a hot-button topic. Yeah. I mean, so, so one of the things you might have heard of Jordan Peterson, and, and I think he first came to prominence when he was pushing back on freedom of speech laws in Canada, saying that you ha were compelled to call someone by a pronoun which they mm. chose. And he said that the government shouldn't compel you to do that. And more recently, <clears throat> Facebook um, and YouTube, which is part of Google, have shifted their stance. And this is my understanding, so I'm sorry if it's off. In the very early days of Facebook and YouTube, anyone could post anything. Then there are some rules about what you can and can't post. So I don't know, child nudity as an example. And so then initially they're just trying to get a start, a, you know, a site running. Then they were removing stuff which was legally uh, said not okay, child nudity, uh, inciting hate with terrorism or something. And now just recently, in the last couple of months, they've gone beyond what the law says. So they're right. actually starting to remove stuff right. which is not what is enshrined in law. <clears throat> and mm. some people would say that this is a breach of the First Amendment, which is the you know, freedom to associate with religion and freedom to speak, etc., um, and they would say that, for instance, they're taking down some things uh, which they wouldn't consider as applicable, e.g. right-leaning, uh, you know, alt-right groups, and they would say that this is them blocking this and this is because they've got a political bias, etc. So they've moved from what was clearly the sort of legal standard to being beyond that. Yeah. All right. So there's a lot in that, and I hopefully will remember to come back to Jordan Peterson later. Um, epic, epic Always. Human. Yeah. Um, but with regard to um, Facebook and YouTube and the direction they're starting to head in, so um, uh, paying attention to what they, the message they've been trying to drive over the years, which is we are not a media company, we're a platform. And by being a platform, that kind of gives them the free pass to not have to police or filter information or expressions flowing through um, onto the front end of whatever they were displaying. And now what we're seeing is it's becoming more difficult for them to get away with that. And this is, where, this is why we're seeing this, um, this new, I guess, this new approach that they're taking in terms of like kind of like hedging themselves by not proliferating uh, you know, the kind of messages that would not otherwise be uh, acceptable. <laughs> cool. I think we'll just take one step back further. Why is there the First Amendment, which is people sort of shorthand to freedom of speech? Um, what America tried to do was to set up all these checks and balances so you could have a democracy that wouldn't commit suicide. And a big part of this is that you, you might need to assume that the person who is running or the people running government, like president and other things, might actually not be doing good things. And if that's the case, how do you stop them from doing bad things and how do you like, remove them from office? And one of the ways of this was free speech. So, for instance, you might have Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon, who was, you know, basically trying to uh, uh, change the, the way that the election was occurring. I'm going to bastardize this and, you know, stealing secrets and then setting people up. 
And so he, he was, you know, removed or he quit um, being president, I think, because he was impeached uh, and then he resigned. Although I'm so sorry if that's not right. And so this is speaking out against the government. Um, you might have Edward Snowden, who is saying, hey, the government's lying to you. They say they're not tracking your stuff, but they are. And so they were lying. And this is freedom of speech. So those things are enshrined. And so for a well-functioning society, some people would say you need freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of association, so you can go and protest, you know, freedom of religious belief, etc. And mm. that this is part of holding to account different parts of society so that you cannot have people basically manipulating things. Right. So this is this is the most interesting part. Like, so... Um, what is freedom of speech's role in a well-functioning society? I think, um, you know, it's kind of why we believe in this in the first place. So, um, I guess the distinction is, where do we see this applicable theory, which in theory people agree with, but we're now starting to witness something else entirely come about within practice because as the saying goes in theory theory and practice are the same thing but in practice they're very much different mm. um so i guess i should first clarify i agree with this but uh what then do we think constitutes a well-functioning society like why do we think that it's important to have free speech in a functioning society yeah so i think i sort of put it forward like sometimes the government as an example is not working for the people, it's working for the people in power. And mm. if you can't then route out corruption or people doing things that are wrong because there's no freedom of speech, then they're able to get away with things. So mm. I would say go to Russia and say that you think Putin is corrupt and he's taking the national resources for his own gain and this and see what happens. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of examples <laughs> of people going missing, you know. Go to China. You know, you cannot talk about Tiananmen Square. You cannot, you know, there was a, they refer to uh, Xi Jinping, you know, as Winnie the Pooh. You can't actually see Winnie the Pooh online because he's, he's suppressing things because he's like, <laughs> so thin-skinned. So I think that you need to be able to assume that sometimes there will be bad actors, i.e. people doing bad things, and that you need ways to counter that. Mm, mm. And one way to counter that is this, uh, you know, freedom of speech. Now, with, uh, in Australia, like you're able to publish something that was, say, taken from the government uh, and it's secret if it's in the public interest. What is determined public interest is open for debate. So if it's not in the public interest, they're not allowed to. But let's say the government lied about something and someone is a whistleblower and leaks that information to a journalist and the journalist looks at it and they think the source is credible, then they're allowed to publish this, is my understanding, if it's in the public interest. And that will be determined you know, by courts and other things. And so this, again, is part of what has been seen to be part of a well-functioning society because you have to assume that bad things are going to happen and you need systems in place to check that they won't you know, run out of control. Mm. So, uh, mic drop. Australia does not actually have an explicit freedom of speech in any constitutional or statutory declaration of rights, which might come across as quite surprising. <laughs> um, with the exception of political speech, which is protected from criminal persecution. Um, but it just goes to show that there are things where, you know, we either look to the UN ch Charter or the US, um, you know, First Amendment and um, their constitutional rights as like the global standard. But it's very, very, um, like, I guess, contrasting when you realize that that's because we see it as a fundamental right or foundational freedom, 
that doesn't necessarily mean that it's enshrined in our own constitution. Hmm. Oh, I agree. So maybe the US is the opposite where it is. I just thought I'd read the First Amendment quickly. Uh, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution prevents the government from making laws with respect to an establishment of a religion, prohibit the free exercise of religion, or abridge the freedom of speech, or the freedom of press, or the right to peaceful assembly, or the right to petition the government uh, for redress of grievances. So this is a broad ranging saying they can't stop the press, they can't stop freedom of speech. But there are categories which aren't allowed. Uh, so these are seen as obscene. Um, there's a test for this. Um, so, for instance, the Miller test, uh, fraud, child pornography, uh, speech to uh, incite illegal behavior, speech that incites uh, immigrant uh, imminent lawless action. Uh, so there are some things which, are, whilst it says you know, that, that are deemed not good and mm. that are able to be stopped, but they're kind of, I think, very, very clearly, you know, that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think... Going from that definition, so where are we seeing this come about in a much more interesting way? Starting off with the point that you made before with regard to Jordan Peterson and what was what 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 actually did happen, I think it did become it did get voted in but then removed slightly later, where the Canadian government tried to mandate or compel speech in the um, in the sense that if you were in the presence of a transgender, you had to address them by their selected pronoun. And Jordan Peterson very quickly broke apart this uh, virtue signaling uh, that he described the government was doing. But the more insidious and potentially dangerous practice of compelling speech, which is at the antithesis to freedom of speech. Yeah. Um, so I think hopefully we have some background. So how can you stop speech? You can physically stop it. Like Putin will just get rid of you if you say too many bad things or go to China and speak out against Xi Jinping. Or you can technologically stop. So for instance, Facebook takes down your content. People can lose their jobs. So someone might say something and then people get fired because there's pressure put on them because they've said something that might be contentious, but is technically not illegal. But if they see people losing their jobs, people then become hesitant to speak out. Um, you can verbally shut people down. So you might have a protest, someone speaking at a university that you don't like. So you go to there and you just protest so they can't actually converse. Then you can have what I call negative sum debate. You're talking, but it's really abrasive and you end up disliking each other more, not really listening to each other. Zero sum discussion where you might listen, but you're not really trying to understand. And then there's positive sum discourse, which is basically where someone's got a different point of view to you, but you're able to listen to them and to try to understand what they're saying, and that might even change your mind. And so there's these different levels, um, and people do these things. And I think we're seeing a lot of this, people losing their jobs over what is not illegal, and just because it, you know the university can't stand up to this kind of public scrutiny because someone mm. said something that might be, for instance, I don't know, climate change isn't real, or mm. something like that. Um, and also, a lot of this verbally shutting down. Um, so James sort of sent around this thing, uh, which I found hilarious, um, which was saying, we are an inclusive society. Um, <laughs> and if we think you are talking, thinking, or behaving in a non-inclusive way, you will be excluded. Um, and so I think there are a lot of people, uh, specifically on, on the left, who, if you have a different point of view to them, just get really aggravated and, and have been yelling effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so that's the, the I, I think, the follow-on uh, in terms of what where, where we're seeing this come to its head uh, in society today. Now, I should 
Um, so, so what I'll get the point I'm getting to is that in a lot of universities, particularly in the US, uh, but also in Australia, um, as being reported by the media, and so the caveat I want to make here is that there are several studies that are showing that this is quite a over um, overreported phenomenon. It's not necessarily as bad as people make it out to be, but the case still remains that there are there is a growing uh, cultural dissent against expression of ideas that are opposed to their own, so to speak. As Duncan was saying, like students would rally and they would try to get a professor fired for expressing his views. Or they would go to a conservative speaker like Ben Shapiro and they would either try to shut down his speech by um, by bracing the doors or by ringing a cowbell throughout the entire time he was speaking. So this is where we're, we're seeing this, you know, um, surprisingly left-leaning, um, you know, campuses engaging in this kind of suppression. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do just a summary of Jordan Peterson's point, I think. And James, let me know if you agree. So let's say someone says something homophobic and you believe that that's wrong. Well, some people have said that they should outlaw homophobic speech. So it's, it's illegal. Jordan Peterson would say that the second order consequence of that is who gets to decide what's illegal and that what mm. if they're outlawing all these things and that it's not good if someone's saying something bad, like Faye, for instance, in your opinion, homophobic speech is bad, but the better response rather than outlawing it because there are all these second order consequences of everything getting outlawed and then turning into a surveillance state is that people should be able to have free speech and that you should be able to say, well, I disagree. I think that same-sex marriage should be allowed for the following reasons. So that basically outlawing things has a much bigger second-order unintended consequence of blocking speech or becoming a sort of totalitarian surveillance state and that the much better approach is to be able to have free speech and to be able to have a discussion, hopefully a positive, some discourse with somebody about how you have a different point of view. Mm. Um, I would say you're mostly on the on money there. Um, so what Jordan Peterson used to help describe this um, this interaction with regards to um, controlling what someone can and cannot say or making it illegal or not is he sees there's basically two possibilities to how you interact with the world. You can either negotiate your social contract with the other person or you can have a um, tyrant and slave type um, dichotomy. And so in the sense of mandating speech or compelling uh, someone to address you in the way that they want to be addressed, that is, you have to do what I say because the regulation backs me. So I am the tyrant and you are the slave. Whereas what Jordan Peterson would say, everything is more an, of a negotiation. And it's up to you and the other person to negotiate how you want to address each other. And so, like you were pointing out with the second order consequences, what that does is that um, reverberates all the way up the chain to what constitutes a functioning society is one where we can cooperate. Mm. Yeah. So, I think there are sort of two ways we could go here. Like, what do you think actually sits as something that you should not include? So, for instance, if someone is inciting people to... I think most people would agree that child pornography is, is not a no-go, you know? <laughs> but if, if somebody is saying, inciting someone to hate, e.g. pushing the white supremacy or some sort of ISIS type thing, should that be banned? Um, and it's my understanding that that counts as hate speech. Now, it depends on the words that you use. And hate speech is, say, in the US, 
are banned. And so I don't think that everything should be allowed. Again, child porn are So there are some things I think are definite no, but there's a whole lot of gray. And mm. where you draw the line is difficult. I would say that all else equal, the line should be drawn much, much further into stuff that you think should be not allowed. Because I do believe the secular consequences of all these things, and it might be right for, I don't know, 80% of society today, but in five years' time. So, I don't know, 150 years ago, marriage intersect was not seen. So if you were like a Protestant and a Catholic, you didn't get married. Right? Intersect, right? Then it was interracial. So, I don't know, if you were black or you were white, you, you didn't get married. Then it is intersex. So, you know, two men or two women could get married. And so I would say that, I don't know, 150 years ago, they would have probably been like, your yeah, homophobic speech, um, you know, that's uh, or actually saying that you can have two people get married is ridiculous and it should be outlawed. Hmm. And now they're saying the opposite. Anyone who says that it can't be done should be outlawed. And so that's, I don't know, maybe a 150 year span. But if you had outlawed that you could say two people of the same sex get married, you stop this. So I think you have to expect the world to change. You have to expect yourself to change. And that some things that were old worldy or, you know, accepted public hangings or whatever, you know, people don't, <laughs> people from two, two sex, you know, you know, of course you wouldn't get, you know, a Catholic wouldn't marry a Protestant. How ridiculous, you know, it's now like, what are you talking about? Who cares? Um, so if this is the case, then I think that you should actually basically allow, you know, much more things than you would currently feel uh, comfortable with because current views are just those current. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I think where you try where you try and draw the line is one of the really really difficult things that people like Jordan Peterson um, uses as a reason for not mandating speeches because he then argues well who decides what is hate who decides what is violence um, and that's another actual distinction that uh, you 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 see being used by people. Uh, on university campus, is that one of the arguments get, or with for oppressing people with opposing speech or thoughts or ideas is the idea that you have a freedom from uh, a freedom of safety or a freedom from violent intent or violent acts. But what's happening here is that there is a difference between physiological violence and psychological, and for a lot of the people arguing this point, they don't see a difference between the two. If you, Duncan, are expressing a view that is counter to my own, that I might get offended by, I see that as a psychological attack. And so that's why we see things like safety zones <laughs> or um, you know, uh, th uh, the, the, the rise of microaggressions rising up because people are treating psychological attacks as if they were the same as physiological or violent attacks. Yeah. Um, I thought it was worth... So I don't think that we should actually get into the fine details of this should be allowed or this shouldn't be allowed because I honestly think it's grey. There's some things that are black and white and that all else equal, if it's like even 10% grey, it's like 9% black, 10% white, then I would be like, allow it. <laughs> so basically, there's a very, very, very high threshold. Much higher, mainly because you don't know the unintended secondary consequences. So just quickly going through, um, I'll post this in the link to the, the podcast, but like Facebook's community standards, they've got a whole lot of things about what is and isn't okay. And so the first one is violence and incitement. Statements of intent to commit high severity violence. Well, I don't actually know what high severity violence is. 
But I assume by this that if it's low severity violence, that's okay. And, you know, who's, who's <laughs> going to do this, right? Um, including content where no target is specific, but a symbol represents a target and anything. So, you know, there's, there's all these um, sort of words. The next one is dangerous individuals and organizations. So if it's a terrorist organization, if it's organized hate, if it's a serial killer, if it's human trafficking, Okay, well, then the next question is, what, what is a terrorist organization? I think most people would say that, I don't know, ISIS is a terrorist organization. But I think some people would say that Hezbollah is, and some people would say that it isn't. Um, you know, it's a legitimate political party. Um, and where that line is becomes murky. Um, so to me, it's, it gets really hard. Then there's promoting and publicizing crime. Like, no acts of physical harm committed against people. So you can't, you know, the, the, the Christchurch, you know, shooting. That's not okay to put online. I think most people are cool with that. Mm. Um, coordinating harm. So you're actually coordinating people doing bad things. You know, regulated goods. So it's like no, um, you know, non or, you know, illegal stuff. So you can't put up you know, drugs or, you know, whatever else it is on there that people are ha having. I'll just quickly go through more because you, so you can sort of see. And it's really interesting. It's injury. So suicide and self-injury. No people committing suicide. Child nudity and sex exploitation. Um, sex exploitation of adults. So if you're trying to, like, I don't know, get people to do things, that's not okay. Bullying and harassment. This is a really interesting one. So they say, you know, like this, you know, attacking them based on their status as a victim of sexual assault, sexual exploitation, domestic abuse. Calling for self-injury or suicide of a specific person. Attacking them through derogatory terms related to sexual activity, e.g. whore, slut. Posting content about violent tragedy. So they're basically saying bullying is not okay. But I think this would be great. Like, there are some, like again, severe bullying, <laughs> not okay. A little bit of bullying. Like if I said, James, you, you know, you look fat in that pant, those pants, I'm pretty sure <laughs> Facebook would, would, wouldn't take it down, right? So this is really, really interesting. So they're basically attempting to draw lines. It's really hard. Mm. Um, mm. And you can go through all of these things. Um, I can sort of read them out to you if you want. But there are 22 different categories that they've got. And I sort of read the first eight. Mm. Um, I think the point here is, is that a severe version of something, this thing, and that you'll see um, that they basically used to block nothing because it's like, there's a starter, they don't know what's going on. Then they're like, okay, we comply with the laws. Now they've gone a step further. And there are some things which there's been moral outrage of, which I think the vast majority of people would say shouldn't be included. Mm. Um, and they're then removing this stuff. And so... I don't know, for instance, Russians posting lies uh, in, in, on Facebook to try and affect an election. I'm not sure that it was necessarily under some of these different things. So we can go to objectional content. Uh, now, where is it? Integrity and authenticity. So false news or misrepresentation. I'm not actually sure, you know, what actually counts as this. But now Facebook have made their rules of what they think false news is. So disrupting economic incentives for people. Okay, what the hell does that mean? You know, and so they've gone beyond what's in the law. Um, and people think this is right, e.g. after the Russians, you know, hacked the US election. Yeah, so, I mean, looking at all of those different elements, and to your point, first of all, this goes well and truly beyond the, um, the constitutional definition. Uh, they do make an attempt of being more specific, but even then it's opened up to a lot more interpretation interpretability but what we're seeing here is the requirement of those coming from a phenomena that i would say 
had largely been enabled by the rise of things like the internet. And uh, when you push that through the lens of things like um, the, the network effect of when one piece of communication can be compounded across thousands to millions of others, suddenly you have a lot more of a compelling case to make sure that the right or sorry, the wrong kind of information isn't being spread. So for an example, when um, the one you gave earlier, like people posting online, uh, you know, abhorrent things, it's not the same as in the past where that might get shared within a very close group and would not go very far beyond that. Whereas now it is accessible to every single man, woman and child. And that has a much different effect on how do we approach this idea of what is or is not good for a functioning society. Yeah, totally. So if you look pre-internet, we'll just talk about two types of companies, like phone companies. You could call up your friend and then media companies, like a TV channel, a newspaper, a radio station. So back pre-internet, phone companies weren't required to regulate what was going on. Well, this is my understanding. So if I got on the phone to James and I was like, you know, let's go and bomb this thing, right? They're not required to be monitoring that and to stop that. But if a newspaper put on the front, everybody, let's go and bomb this thing, that's not good. So the newspapers and the TV shows and the radio stations were required to be effectively trying to self-censor and to be able to apply it to the laws. And if they weren't, then they get prosecuted and they, you know, bad things can happen, right? Mm. So one end, no, and, and part of that, you know, is because distribution was hard. To get mass distribution to uh, whatever, a million people, was only possible through TV or radio or through, you know, um, newspapers. Um, but that's changed with the internet. Anybody can effectively get to anybody now. And so initially... Facebook and YouTube were sort of claiming to be like a telephone company. We don't need to, to do any of these things. But the difference is that, I don't know, maybe you could have a group call where there's 10 of your friends on, on the phone or something. Now, it's not uncommon for you know YouTube videos to get millions and millions of views. So your ability to broadcast is massively different. The difference is that a newspaper was making the content. A TV show was making the content, right? Mm. Facebook isn't. So there's this weirdness. That just like on a phone, the phone company's not making me say something. Facebook's not making you post something. But the distribution from a small group of people to everybody has shifted. Mm. And they initially claimed to be phone companies, but now they're sort of shifting. Like, no, we actually have to start to self-censor. We have to enforce the laws. Yeah. And so this was a, a change in approach where they were initially very resistant. As you said, they wanted to be more like... The, the platform were considered... I as, think resistance is wrong. They took a view that this was the right way to go. So I think well, that's not necessarily a characterization that I would put in there. Um, I, I can't remember what part of the characterization I was making, but I guess um, they... like So Mark Zuckerberg, I think, was... When this was all rearing his head and they had to testify, um, both he and Sheryl Sandberg, um, if my recollection is correct, they were trying to say is that we provide the means. We are not a media company. But what's happening is, as you as you uh, outlined in things like with YouTube, as with things like with Facebook, um, what's happening on there, is that's not holding much water anymore. Like they have provided this platform where not just content creators in the traditional sense, but anyone can put something up onto um, you know social media or YouTube, 
And it's like what you're saying, they're not compelling people to publish this stuff, but they are providing a very, very potent means for anybody to be able to access this stuff instead. And so what are the, uh, I guess, the, the opposing forces in terms of who's responsible for mandating or for monitoring what gets distributed in that particular medium? Yeah, so I'd say there's two major differences between something like Facebook and YouTube than there was for, say, a phone company and a, a TV station or, or a newspaper. One, a phone company couldn't have mass distribution to millions of people. But Facebook and YouTube, they also wanted to have people stay on the site. So it's not just a place to post content. They're also recommending content. So there is the recommended videos on YouTube, and it was sort of algorithmically done. And in the early days, it was just growth, 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 growth. Get as many people on there as possible and get them to spend as much time as possible. Not how they're spending their time. Not time well spent, time spent. And what they did is they reverse engineered what got people to stay on the site. So click another video. You know, what, like that article or comment on that article. And that was often what was playing to humans' worst instincts. Greed, fear, envy. Um, and so this is basically created what they call filter bubbles, i.e. you get inside of a, a, a little group of people saying one thing, and this is, you've seen these articles in the New York Times and stuff, people becoming radicalized because they go down this spiral. So they're, they're different in two ways. One, they provide distribution to effectively an unlimited number of people, like as many people as there are. And two, they said they're not a media company because they're not making media, but they are, in my opinion, because they're recommending content so they, whilst not making it, are having a say. The phone company you know, didn't force me to listen to stuff when I picked up the phone. Or I didn't pick up the phone and just wait there listening. And it's like, would you like this next recommended piece of content? So there's somewhere <laughs> in between, right? Mm. The, 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 a, a newspaper makes the content and then puts it in order, right? A phone company can't give you distribution and doesn't make content. So Facebook and YouTube give you distribution and recommend content. So there should be somewhere in between, in my opinion. Mm. And so they should have an onus on stopping what is legally not there and they're trying to do this. So they've been like, okay, we are under the same rules of what is legal and what is not legal as you know, a phone as a newspaper is. But mm. they're going a step further, which is saying, well, some of this stuff isn't in the law. And, and I've seen Zuckerberg say this, we don't think this should be our responsibility. We think that this should be the government's responsibility and that they think that there are some places where the law is trailing what is basically best practice. So the laws worked for a pre-internet time. But the world is not pre-internet, and there are things which now people consider as not able to, you know, uh, you know, Russians and fake news, right? Which I don't believe are enshrined in the Constitution. And so they're making a whole lot of judgment calls, and this is pissing a whole lot of people off because they're on the wrong side of the judgment. But I think it's the right thing. Mm, yeah, um, I think this was really well characterized by um, a fellow called Ben Thompson, who writes a. Uh, a, a blog called Stratechery. Yeah. Uh, and what he writes on the Pollyannish assumption. Mm. So the Pollyannish assumption is the idea that everything is mostly good, but for some bad apple. So the first thing he does, he breaks down, and so this is what we we're trying to talk about earlier this idea of. James, friction. can I just give you my two cents of the Pollyannish assumption? Of course. Um, it's that people will do good. So there's new tools. So paper isn't good or bad, the internet isn't good or bad. There were new tools to be able to communicate, YouTube, Facebook as an example, and they would use this to try to spread good. But there are people out there that are trying to hack elections. There are people out there that are trying to incite terrorism. There are people out there that are trying to push hate. 
And so he says, and I think that the, the tech companies assumed that it would be used for good and didn't assume there would be some percentage of people that are bad actors and they would try and hack the system. So they weren't basically building up a, a defense against this assumption of bad actors. Yeah. So, um, so in, in addition to that, what the case he's making is that, so firstly, the internet and things like YouTube and Facebook have been phenomenal in removing friction. Because friction makes things harder, um, both the good we can do, but also the unimaginably terrible. So by removing friction and our eagerness to celebrate the good, we ought not to lose sight of the potential bad. So what he says is the root of the problem is that he doesn't believe platforms so much as drive the abhorrent content, but they just make it easier than ever before for humans to express themselves. And the reality of what we're, is, what we are, is both more amazing and more awful than most anyone ever appreciated. And I think that's the, like the new world that we're living in, where we, instead of being much more close to our um, local community, are in a world where we are exposed to the very best, but the very worst of people everywhere. And so we have a much more, I guess, extended spectrum that we are um, now aware of, which is problematic. Mm. I think there are two core reasons. One, you know, what are they promoting? Uh, but, but why things are sort of not going necessarily so great. One is bad actors. They're just straight up people out there that want to do bad shit. Um, and you've got to, you've got to, you know, or Russia or ISIS or, or you know, white supremacy groups, etc. right? Um, and and you, you basically cannot have an unregulated place where they can do whatever they want. You've got to effectively have police like you know a country like do you want there to be no police in your country no do you want there to be no courts no well if no one did anything bad you don't need police if if no one did anything bad you don't need jails the question is not if you have jails or police or not. it's like what are the rules around it and i think that there weren't really rules or facebook and other things effectively have a ecosystem just like a country and just like in a country where you need police they need police and they didn't have police um, but they feel that they need to make the rules, laws, but they don't want to. And I think you can argue that they're perhaps not best, that we should have a democratic process for this rather than some sort of you, you know, um, authoritarian regime. Mm. Uh, it might be a benign you know, um, authoritarian regime, but I don't know this power should sit with them. Um, and that's what I think Facebook is calling for. Um, so, so I'll just say reason one, they're bad actors. Reason two... When people, and we'll come back to this after, when people don't have their face on something, they'll say something they don't. If you could be online and anonymous without your name, you might say some shit that you would never say in person. And you're just doing it to start a fight because you think it's fun. But I think, And reason three is humans don't have the antibodies yet or know what is good food for their mind, i.e. good information for their mind. And I'll talk about the other two in a minute if you like, or you can pick one of them, James. Mm. Oh, well, I, I think the, the last point is the most interesting in terms of um, you know what is the, what is the right... Um, nootropics or what is the right nutrition for your mind uh, in this new world of prolific information. Um, and I, I believe we touched on this before where we witness a new phenomena. In the past, it has been simple things like alcohol and how we manage this new, um, uh, I, I guess, substance. And in today's world, that substance is social media or the proliferation of information on the internet. And as you would say, Duncan, like, how do we manage that in a healthy way? Yeah, I think there's always something new for humanity. 
and humanity doesn't know how to look after it. You know, it's got to learn how to use this thing well. Mm. Um, so, um, as an example, humans used to never have to worry about overeating. So this is why your body is like, you know, just wants to eat as much as possible. The problem was starving to death. There was a flood or a famine, you know, or uh, you know, a fire or or a neighboring tribe attacking. Now we have more people dying from too much food than not enough food. You know, so it's like, okay, you got to learn to restrain yourself when you can just go into the supermarket and get more. You know, when opium comes along to China, they have opium dens. Mm. Uh, when cigarettes come along, 90% of humans are smoking, now 10%. Um, you know, people, you know, if you said I'm going for a run in the 50s, like running from who? Now people go to the gym by choice. You know, if you want to eat health, people eat healthy by choice, right? So people used to have a deficit of information. It was only, it was on the TV and if you missed it, you missed it. It's only a certain amount of stuff you can fit in the newspaper that was printed. Mm. And so then the internet made unlimited ink content because the distribution bottlenecks were gone. And so you used to just not have enough food. Now you would eat too much food, right? You used to not have enough information. So you had to have people pick and choose. So there were wise people that were trying to have perhaps a more bi- a balanced view, like the editor of the newspaper or whatever. And now you get to choose what you want to eat for your mind. And it's just like, you know, ah, oh, well, what do you ask a teenage boy? I want to play Xbox and eat junk food. You know, so that's effectively what you've been able to do for your mind. You've fed your mind junk food, and this has led to anxiety, depression, Trump, Brexit, you know, some people would say. And so if you look, for instance, at teenage um, suicide attempts, which is a very hard number, it's more than, it's about doubled in the last 10 years. So that's since iPhones and social media came along. So I would argue there's a new thing. There's always a new thing for humanity. And this time it is unlimited information. And we've been feeding ourselves not necessarily Pollyannish stuff, i.e. positive stuff, been feeding ourselves bad stuff, uh, eating disorders, status mm. anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, right? People have been bullying people because there's a new way to bully. You better go home from school and not have someone bully you. Now they can bully the crap out of you. Mm. Well, so yeah, so this is actually um, a, a, a key challenge that brings us back to the idea of freedom of speech uh, in the sense that, well, where do we draw the line in terms of what we can say in front of other people versus what we can say online? that has a much more compounding effect and not discounting the fact that when you put something online, it can more or less be regarded as there forever, <laughs> which is um, another um, you know, compounding impact on the, um, you know, the sense that this has. And the way in which we treat each other is, um, I would say, considerably different. Like when you think about just the way in which the mind works, uh, you know, only 7% of the way we communicate is through our words, whereas the other 93%, I think, um, <laughs> how's my math, is through um, you know, body language, intent, um, tone, all of these different kinds of things. So it's a much easier proposition, to go back to what Jordan Peterson was saying, to negotiate with uh, your peers or within a community in person than it is to negotiate the same, I guess, um, boundaries or foundation of what makes a good healthy relationship online when all you're doing is texting or putting up a, a one-way communication channel which is a video hmm. yeah so I, I think that the environment's changed significantly <laughs> we have these devices where you can get whatever you want whenever you want and there's no distribution barriers um there are bad actors out there that just want to do evil things and they used to not be able to get distribution but they can now um you don't have to have your face on it so you could pretend to be someone in the middle of, you know, Midwest of America, but you're in a Russian security agency or whatever else it is, right? And so then people say things that they wouldn't say otherwise if they didn't have to put their face to it. 
And three, humans don't have the antibodies to be able to understand, I'm feeding myself junk food, I'm feeding myself junk food, stop doing it. You know, this, mm. you know they say you, you, what you feed your mind determines partially who you are. So if you feed it, I'm going to be angry about climate change. I'm going to be angry about immigration or whatever else it is. Then you become angry about it. And then if you just watch more and more and more and more of that, <laughs> it's bad. So I think it's entirely predictable, or this is, you know, in hindsight, hindsight is twenty twenty, that this environment is different. And so I think a big part of the reason that the world is unhappy today and I think it is more unhappy than it was. It's not, it's not sort of, a, 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 it, it is a reflection of reality, is because mm. we're feeding ourselves as a society much more negative stuff than we were able to pre-smartphones, pre-social media, pre-internet. Mm. Well, I, I, and, and that goes to an interesting um, point about this uh, dichotomy of, um, I guess, personal and uh, uh, on the in, uh, social media relations. Is when, you, when you look at the way in which social media institutions like Facebook are set up, it is to augment itself to keep you engaged. Uh, you know, it's been shown that they have created the, uh, the infrastructure so that you will be, um, you know, you get a dopamine hit every time you get a like, or that you keep coming back to see who posted the latest article or um, comment or what Duncan ate for breakfast this morning, so to speak. Uh, but all of the cues are designed based around an understanding of how your mind instinctively works. And it's designed, well, um, like I've, I've heard many people say that it's designed specifically to exploit those elements. Whereas if we saw someone in real life who was doing similar aspects of trying to exploit you in order to manipulate you for an intended purpose, that would be a lot more socially unacceptable. I mean, like you, you can choose pickup artists for an example. Like they purport to understand in, like how the other gendered mind works in particular ways, and they exploit that in order to get a desired outcome. You know, mm. like face, Facebook is a company; they're a for-profit run organization, so they're incentivized to keep you engaged, and so they want to exploit against that. So my characterization would be, would be quite different. I don't think that they went out with any bad intent. Mm. And I think that a lot of people have, have characterized that way. And I, my understanding of what you said was characterizing them as having bad intent. I think that they thought that connecting people was actually a good thing. And I think for a lot of people it is. But connect to what end? So that they can share beautiful moments with each other and continue to have you know, good friendships through a long-tail friendship solution so you can, you can stay in touch with like another 100 people because you can see what they're updating. Or so you can push fake news, you know, status anxiety, eating disorders. And so I don't think that they were at all trying to give you something bad. It just was an unintended second-order consequence and that they had an overriding Pollyannish assumption that it would be good. And I think that about two years ago, the major tech companies, so let's just take YouTube and, and Facebook, started to recognize this and started to shift this. So it was, as an example, a stated goal at YouTube to get a billion daily active hours watched on YouTube. What hours? Didn't care. Just a, just a billion hours. And so they were reverse engineering what would make people stay around for longer. Mm. Some people have healthy habits, right? So it would give them healthy food. Some people don't. It would give them unhealthy stuff. I would argue that on average, the average person did not know what was healthy and was more unlikely to engage in incendiary stuff. And so that on average, it was feeding them more unhealthy food. But this mm. wasn't a 
proactive thing. And I think it's really disingenuous to say, well, they're a for-profit company and therefore they're just going to try and maximize profit. I don't think Google or Facebook do that at all. Um, and, I, and so I think that's an unfair characterization. All right, so well, if I can, I if think, I can be yeah. more specific then, um, <laughs> people like Sean Parker, one of the founders of Facebook, has come out and said explicitly <laughs> that they designed it to exploit human vulnerability. Like he, he said he this said, after the fact, and I think he's putting a negative spin after he was left from Facebook. Well, and he's I'm saying not, that a notification gives you a dopamine hit. And so he's saying that they're putting inside inbuilt different things. What's the notification about? That your friend posted a photo from when you caught up and you want to see that beautiful thing. It wasn't necessarily pushing these things. So I think that there is the possibility that it could have been playing, you know, it's addictive and it's bad for you. It's the new smoking, you know, that's a Mark Benioff quote. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they actively tried to make something that was bad for you. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I agree with the notion that Mark Zuckerberg genuinely believed that Facebook is a force for good in the world. I don't have... Uh, I, I think maybe we can agree well, on that I, point. I think they thought the whole way through they were doing something good. And I think they were unaware of some of the second order consequences to, or unaware of the full extent. Mm. And you know, it wasn't like that building Facebook was some long-term ruse so that the Russians could hack a US election. No. That's not, that wasn't the goal, right? Or so that, so that some kid could post a, photo, post a photo of them looking really skinny and then make other kids feel like they have to be skinny too. But that wasn't the goal. Right. So I think the whole way along, they've been trying to help connect people and they've had a noble mission, but unfortunately, they've had unintended second order consequences. But so go back to my original example of Facebook and a pickup artist, right? They could both have good intentions. Right? A pickup artist might simply be someone who wants to meet a potential partner but knows certain cues that will be able to exploit them to get into their um, good graces or like more favoured. Just the same as what the example here for Facebook would be is that Facebook wants to connect people. It wants to people to have a, a life online, um, for want of a better term but it knows the ways in which it can manipulate the human brain to compel or encourage them to do that. So what I would, um, I guess, argue is that if I was someone and I realized that I was being exploited by a pickup artist, kind of like the Hitch movie premise, <laughs> um, then I would feel exploited um, regardless of the outcome. And so the idea is that, yes, Facebook can have a noble um, vision. You know, the road to hell is paved in good intentions. But the idea that they were augmenting or engineering it in such a way to exploit the more addictive tendencies of the human um, character is what's more questionable. So I don't think they were necessarily knowingly sort of doing that. They were, they were making notifications and other things. Um, and, you know, notifications could get you to come back. And then they were wanting to get people to engage in content. So they would promote content that was more engaging. And they didn't realize that sometimes the engaging stuff was actually incendiary it played to the seven deadly sins greed envy fear etc mm. um and that all else equal they're sort of shifting on this i think that there's there's two approaches right algorithmic and then human <laughs> um with algorithms they're basically reverse engineering what you want and they're reverse engineering the crowd and so they say that humans in crowds can do horrible things that they'll go and commit genocide you know they'll they'll, they'll have Enron or whatever else it is, right? That any human by themselves would sort of be less bad. And more than that, there's a lot of people that I don't think necessarily understand what is healthy information for their mind. And so I would argue that YouTube and Facebook is information, right? And that 
And because there's wisdom of crowd problems and because humans don't know it's healthy for them, the pure algorithmic approach, which is reverse engineering what you want, is not necessarily acceptable. It's not necessarily going to give good outcomes. Mm. But they've tried to do this because these are computer scientists. The other approach is pure human. It's like what goes on the New York Times homepage. It's what is in Apple News. That's all humans that curate that. What do I think should be happening? Well, I think that it's conceivable that their recommended videos on YouTube actually need a layer of human curation. You know, that's going to change. That might mean time goes down. But I, I would be totally fine with this. There's 24 hours in a day. You need to figure out how to spend it well. I think you should spend one hour of a day on you know extracurricular learning, and that can come through YouTube, it can come through Facebook, it can come through podcasts or whatever. But th- that's likely that that stuff should be through human recommendation, not through algorithmic recommendation, because algorithmic recommendation can't tell you what you don't know you want to know and can't tell you if this is hate speech or not hate speech properly. Hmm. So, so this is the, one of the challenges that we have with this proliferation of information. Um, like YouTube and Facebook both have thousands and thousands of people who are sitting in rooms going through content that is uploaded onto their platform every single day to tee that and remove um, you know the, the the kind of thing that we uh, uh, well that you laid out in their uh, their conditions <laughs> earlier on, um, but because you know what was it that like a billion hours is uploaded not, not like they have a billion hours watched a year that was their goal but they a have day. a lot Billions of a day, yeah yeah so that, that a lot of hours is uploaded onto YouTube it's just not tenable to have it all curated by a human being or all like um, I guess monitored in that particular level so that's where we have this challenge of like well we're in a world where we're now in a, an abundance of information i really like that um that analogy that you gave Duncan, where you know we were scarce on food for over two hundred thousand years and as soon as food became abundant we didn't know how to handle that properly yeah, and so diabetes now and you know heart attacks and all that other jazz exactly so now we're in a world where information was the scarcity um, but it's now become an abundance of information. And so how can you separate the good for the bad? Um, and it's not the same as food because for food, you know, you can you know, do tests on your body and understand what is good for it and bad for it and then go out and choose only what's good for it. With information, um, the way um, platforms like YouTube is set up, it's something like 70% of content viewed is on the recommended feed or the like the watch next on on YouTube. Like there's not this index or category, um, category uh, catalog of like things you can go and watch on YouTube. So to speak, it's really just either search or watch what's recommended. And so that's where like that was designed to great success for getting people engaged. But um, the problem still stands of how do we have human curation on a platform that is just exponentially um, like far bigger than anything that we could possibly hope to curate with just human beings. I think this is the stat, and I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong. More video is uploaded to YouTube each day than has been on TV in the 60 years that it's been around in the US. I believe that. So basically, it's not possible for humans to watch all of it. Uh, it's just, and it's growing exponentially. Um, I think, like you said, like food has nutrition information. Information should have nutrition information. So read this article and then it's like, well, what does it contain? Whereas this one's got like this much iron and this much carbohydrates and this much protein or whatever. Mm. It should have this, this much hate, <laughs> this much, you know, <laughs> um, I don't know, false news, this much, um, 
you know, negative information, etc. And I'm sure that that's, you know, going to be hard. Unlike food where you can, I don't know, put it in a calorific tester or whatever and see these things, it's going to be open for debate. I, however, do think you can actually have human curation work. A perfect example, I think, is, is the newspapers. So they have to figure out what to write and they have to figure out what to do. And so you can go to the New York Times homepage and there is more than enough information for you to be able to never run out. Then you might say, okay, well, I also like some tech news. Now I'm going to go and look at the TechCrunch homepage. Okay, I'm now also interested in sport. So I'm going to go and look at this sport. So for me, I don't think that you cannot not have human curation. So, so how would I sort of think about this? Um, now, this is just early thoughts. They can upload anything they want, and then you remove anything that's illegal, right? And you can have algorithms help with that. Then... The, the promoted videos or the recommended articles are only stuff that is done by approved recommended sources. So you might say, look, Ben Shapiro is right-leaning, you know, political person in the US. I'm center-left, all else equal. Um, but I listen to him mainly because I want to make sure that I'm getting the other side of what's going on here and seeing how their point of view. And I listen to him and I disagree with most stuff. And it's really actually quite nice to not just know that all oh, I've been listening mainly to center-left and therefore I'm center-left. So, no, I, I disagree with this, and here's why I disagree. So, I think that with, in the sort of, is it ones, tens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, I reckon in the thousands or tens of thousands of people, you can cover 99.9% .9 of the information humans would need. And you can have a spectrum from the different points of view on this thing. And, uh, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of people is something that can be manually approved. Those people can then recommend whatever they want. And they might recommend stuff, but then it's not like, well, who's recommending this? Well, it's Ben Shapiro, who's been approved. It's not someone who claims to be somebody who's actually a Russian troll who pushes 10 pieces of news that are true and then one that is fake, which actually is incendiary, and you don't know which one's true or not. So it has to be attached to real person. So one of the problems is, you know, you don't know who the person is. Well, this is the case. This means that you can share an article with your friend, whatever you want. People can publish stuff, but the recommended videos aren't algorithmically done. They're done through humans. And through careful curation, no one's saying this is perfect. No one's saying this isn't going to have problems. The question is, does it have less problems than pure algorithm? Which is, I think, shown to have clear, huge problems. So I think, um, like, to try and tease out the steel man argument of your, what you're saying is I agree that in the future there's going to be a lot of um, value in having human curation. But I think what's going to happen is that they will each service a particular niche. So, you know, if to take the New York Times and um, in the particular um, content that they provide every single day, if from, you know, a small group of very highly select and highly informed individuals on certain areas. But what's happening with things like YouTube and Facebook is the problem of scale, like what they want. And, you know, it goes back to the original arbitrary goal of just getting a, a billion hours viewed of because their business model is ads they just want eyeballs they don't care about please stop linking it to business model i think this is a very unfair gross mischaracterization wow. they were trying to figure out how to have people find a new source of things trying to have people that have a thousand people to follow and i think that they had losses for more than 10 years i don't know if they're making a profit on youtube you know as they were trying to do these things so i think people that state that are grossly misrepresenting what happened 
they were trying to do something that was good for the world. They just had mm. unintended second order consequences because of a Pollyannish assumption. They weren't trying to maximize revenue. That, that I think is not a fair characterization. Well, it's what they were saying. It's literally what they said. No, they, they said they want a billion hours of video, not so they can maximize revenue. That, you, you linked that. And I think that's a very unfair characterization. They thought that this was, so for instance, YouTube means anyone can have a little video or TV show for anyone. Not so they can make a lot of money. The YouTube, you know, the Google founders are still there. Um, you know, Facebook's still there. And yes, I'm not saying that they don't have a business that should feed itself, but the goal wasn't make as much money. The goal was help world. Right. So if the goal was help world, but even if it's done in an arbitrary way, not to say that, um, like, I guess maybe it should help frame that it's not about the fact that they just want to make money, but the fact was that they just wanted eyeballs on the screen. They just wanted to have... No, but the eyeballs on the screen was because they thought it was a good thing. Yeah. Not because... So, so I think you have been saying and linking in an unfair fashion that it was just about money. And I think it's not, not about money, but I remember when I worked at Google, they would say that YouTube's growing faster and faster and the faster it grows, the more money we lose. So literally, like making it grow faster would make them lose more money. Mm. But they were like, nah, still, make it grow faster. So you could argue from a, from a financial perspective that was the worst thing to do. They were doing this because they felt that it was good for humanity. Right. So now, there they, were unintended, like, I don't know, people putting fake news and filter bubbles and all the other stuff, which yeah. I think is now the prominent part of the, the, you know, the narrative or the, okay. the discussion. So, yeah, the, the intent is not helpful. So I might have taken it on a, um, a misguided notion that the intent is part of the um, situation here. The intent is not part of the situation. I was looking at how this has been set up. So going back to the original um, premise, which is Google just wants to get as much content on the platform as possible, or YouTube, sorry, regardless of what is driving them, whether it's um, whether it's a noble intent or whether it's purely physical, doesn't matter. It's just that they're trying to get as much content up there as possible. Now, what the um, the challenge then is that I think we can agree that it's impossible to have a human curate all of that content because, as you said, there's more hours being uploaded in a day than all people in the world would possibly be able to view. But if the, you know, even if the the view to have a, you know, a good something good for the world being you know this platform that has endless content available to it. How then do we make sure that there's not too much exposure to bad content? And so their current answer is the algorithm. And I would also agree. Well, I would argue that the algorithm will get better over time, but it goes back to the original, um, I guess, challenge of well, who decides what's bad? Who decides what's hatred? Because our bodies with what's nutritional and not nutritional is a much better signal at telling us what's good and bad for us because if you eat bad food, you get sick. <laughs> um, if you eat nutritional food, you generally get more healthy. Um, but to your point, you know, like listening to someone like Ben Shapiro, or um, you know, he's a, he's a very well um, informed uh, conservative thinker, or someone like John Oliver, who is a very funny um, comedian, there's not some, well, it would be a bigger challenge, I would say, to have a set of rules or parameters around how do we decide what's nutritional content versus what's bad for us, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, so we need to wrap up because I need to get out of here. Um, 
I would say that one thing they're trying to do is remove bad. You know, both YouTube and Facebook have more than 10,000 people that are helping their algorithms figure out what's bad and remove it. What I'm advocating is instead of removing bad, allowing good. So the only stuff that it's allowed to be recommended has been pre-vetted by a human. And you can have, I don't know, thousands or tens of thousands of humans that are approved and they might do some stuff that's not good. And that's going to be more than enough content for 99.9% .9 of people. You can still share individual videos, but it's a fundamentally different shift. Maybe one day the, the algorithms will get better. What I'm more interested in is stuff that you sh you know don't yet know you want to know. If you go to YouTube and you don't know who Jordan Peterson is, it doesn't give you Jordan Peterson videos. You click on Jordan Peterson and then it gives you Jordan Peterson videos. So for me, I think there'd be maybe you can have a combination of humans and algorithms. Um, but I also at the current time think that humans, good humans, uh, you know the ones. So there are you know polymath freak shows um, would be able to do a much better job at recommendation than with the algorithms. And so I suppose that's my summary. My summary is you should basically have stuff that's um, suppressed or banned is, is really, really clearly so. Like, it's, you know, keep much more stuff possible in the public sphere. How do you have this work for these new platforms like Facebook and YouTube? Well, I think you have to think about doing recommendation well. And recommendation well, I don't think is what's occurring right now. I think you need to think about what's delicious and nutritious. And I think an easy or a better solution done well, now it's hard, is human curation. Okay, so civilization began the first time an angry person cast a word instead of a rock. And ever since then... Um, That's great. <laughs> um, Sigmund Freud, I think it was. But ever since then, when we rely on the spoken word, I think, well, not since then, like in, the, in recent history, we've come to a collective agreement that freedom of speech is central to having a functioning civilization in that regard. Um, and I think even things like today's episode is a great example of two people with their own ideas and thoughts coming together and trying them out against each other and seeing where certain things land and certain things don't particularly um, land well at all. Has been... Against is a word I wouldn't use. We are discussing in a positive some way and learning from each other. This is right. not a battle of ideas. This is a interthinking. We're right. thinking together and learning from each other. Exactly. And by having the, um, the implicit freedom of speech underpinning that, you know, you know, we can feel compelled and safe to be able to express things that might not necessarily be well thought out or it might not necessarily be true in a sense, but it will improve our way of thinking by trying it out. Uh, at least I found that to be the case in this uh, social yeah. experiment of ours. Um, so I think where we got to, which was a very, very, um, I, I guess, wild rabbit hole um, down into <laughs> the more modern mechanics of um, the internet and social media, is that we do have this challenge of understanding what is good and bad for us in a um i guess in, a, in in the sense of what's hatred and what's um what's not we do have this challenge of figuring out where to suppress speech and where to encourage it but i think at the end of the day if the if the underlying premise is to is to share ideas and to figure out what makes sense and what is the right way forward, or not the right way forward, there isn't the right way, but what makes sense for society to work better as a whole, I think we need to have something like a collective understanding of there being the freedom to speak your mind. Yeah.
All right, cool. I've enjoyed this. I think there were some good things. Um, so this is the end. I'm over time. I've got to run. But yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and see you all soon. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.